Welcome, everyone. Today is Friday the 13th, September 13th, 2013, and this is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and really uh, looking forward to kicking off a great year today with a topic that is relevant to everyone and that we all need to understand better. We're going to talk about interpreting genetic testing today, and I'm excited to welcome our guest speaker, who is Dr. Richard Bowles. Um, who is not only a mitochondrial specialist at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, but also um, the scientific um, physician and advisor for Cortigen Life Sciences. So Dr. Bowles really has his hands deep in genetic testing and is going to do a lot of uh, service for the community today in helping us to really boil down what those test results mean. So Dr. Bowles, I want to welcome you. And thank you. And I uh, also mentioned that we have uh, some other supporting staff from Cortigen joining us today. John, are you also with us? Uh, yes, I am. Okay, welcome. So, um, and Lori, are you with us as well? Yes, I'm here as well. Okay, super. So we have John Lenan and Lori Emmerich from Cortigen Diagnostics also joining us to be able to help answer additional questions and chime in because um, truly it gets down to where the devil's in the details right, with um, this genetic testing. So we want to be sure that we have the chance to get as much information as possible. So, Dr. Bowles, um, I, I certainly didn't do you justice with that short um, introduction. There's there's many things that we, we note about you, but in my interactions with Dr. Bowles, I will kind of boil it down to say that Dr. Bowles is truly a bedside-to-bench-to-bedside model of a physician and scientist, meaning that he um, combines what he's doing in his research with what he's doing with the patients um, in his clinic and, and that he's actively caring for. And that is a huge service for the mitochondrial disease patient community, and um, we've been excited to see that um, service grow, Dr. Bowles, over the last several years. So I want to welcome you again. Before we get started, I just want to orient everyone to your slides as well. So there are slides to follow along with today. It's not necessary for you to see them, but it will be helpful for you. The slides can be found if you go to mitoaction.org. You um, look under the recent news for the post called Interpreting Genetic Testing. And if you click on that, you'll see those slides pop up right in the middle of the page. If you um, don't see them right away, just be patient. They may take a second to load up. And then you can follow along with those slides using the SlideShare app right in that page. If you see the four cornered arrows in the corner, that also will open it up to a full screen. Finally, we will take questions at the end of today's call. And if you want to send those questions during the call, then please go ahead. My, you can email them to me to director at mydirection.org. So now that our housekeeping's done, I'm excited to get started on this topic. Goodness, we all are seeing this, you know, information about a VUS and mutations and abnormal or unknown, and we have a lot of questions. So, Dr. Bowles, I'll hand it over to you. Welcome and thank you. Oh, well, thank you. That was actually a great introduction. I've been interested in genetic testing now coming up on 20 years um, since we started doing sequencing um, with the idea that if we knew exactly what we were treating, then we would be able to treat it better. And in the last year, the advances have been so incredibly great that not only have I diagnosed the vast majority of my patients that just had a, quote, mitochondrial disease, end quote, diagnosis before that, but many of them we've been able to put on specific treatment. 
And so the future is already here, and I'm very excited about that. Um, this is a very complicated area. I am going to have to speak at various levels. Some of you on the phone really don't understand what DNA is, and others are scientists or, or family members that have been dealing with this and have done all the literature and know more than what your doctors do. And sure, there's a lot of you on that that, that are that way. And so some of this you won't understand, but there's some things that people on there that are more sophisticated want to know, and then some things will go like, well, of course we know that. Why are you saying that? But so I'm going to just try to talk at various levels, so bear with me on that. Um, there'll be opportunity to ask questions afterwards. The other thing is on slide number one, if you look at the lower left, lower right-hand corner of the slides, just that little gray number. Most of the slides have numbers. I'll try to give those numbers when we get to it. Slide one is not the first slide in the deck, but slide zero. This one is slide one. This is the disclosure slide, which is necessary for any time that I give a talk. Um, I'm talking at various different levels here because I am working for industry. It's a for-profit company that we make diagnoses um, based on next-gen sequencing. I'm also a researcher interested in figuring out what's wrong with these kids in publishing and what we're doing. And a clinician, I have a busy clinic and I see a lot of these patients. And the three of those roles interchange to the point that it's really hard to know which hat I'm wearing at any given time and I'm probably wearing all three. Um, so, you know, bear in mind on that. Part of this talk is going to be an overview of genetic testing and all the various avenues that are out there, um, some of which are um, offered by the company I work for and some of them are not. And some of the talk is going to be going over particular products that Cordigen is having. And my experience over the last year has mostly been the ability of our own laboratory to, to make these diagnoses, so we're kind of to marry the two together. So going on to slide, the next slide, these look like little cartoon figures, but, and the colors are not real, but these are actual photos of mitochondrial DNA and the nuclear DNA. The magnification is extremely different between it because the mitochondrial DNA is only 16,000 nucleotides long, and that may sound like a lot, but the nuclear DNA is 3 billion nucleotides. So each and every one of those tiny little chromosomes is many, many more times larger than the mitochondrial DNA. Um, the mitochondrial DNA has 37 genes, um, and it's only from the mother, so this maternal inheritance. There's no mitochondrial DNA that comes from your father. It's sperm needs a lot of energy, it has a lot of mitochondria, it has mitochondrial DNA, but that mitochondrial DNA does not replicate in the baby. The nuclear DNA comes equally from both parents. It's in the chromosomes, 22, then a number, plus an X and a Y. And there are 22,000 genes, give or take, that are known, probably a lot more. And 1,013 genes, by, at the time that I made this slide, of the nuclear DNA encodes for proteins which are in the mitochondria. So the mitochondria is made up of a little bit more than a 1,000 proteins, and 37 of those, actually it's not 37, 13, because most of the genes in the mitochondrial DNA do not make proteins. But anyway, 13 of the proteins in the, mito in the mitochondria are encoded by the mitochondrial DNA, and about a 1,000 by the nuclear DNA. And the nuclear DNA is inherited by the things that you learned in school. There's autosomal recessive, dominant, X-linked, the same things about the pea plants and everything that you heard about before. So when we're talking about mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial genetics, we're not only talking about the mitochondrial DNA, which is internally inherited, 
but we're also talking about the over 1,000 genes in the nuclear DNA, which are inherited in the usual ways that other diseases are inherited. And to make things even more difficult is that we're finding that a lot of patients have defects in both of those at the same time, and the two of them interact together to make disease in the child. Um, slide three is just to go over, these are pictures of what the actual sequencing machines look like. In the upper left-hand corner is a, is a finger sequencing machine. That's just the standard sequencing machine. That was state-of-the-art, you know, about five years ago or so, back in the dark ages. Um, that machine that takes half a lab bench was revolutionary in that we could then sequence entire genes. Um, and a gene can often have 10, 30, or more exomes that is areas that encode for the protein that are separated by very large areas. So you can see in the middle all of those little peaks and everything. That's what the sequence output looks like. And if you're looking at a gene that has, let's say, a few thousand nucleotides, you can see that the output will be um, those peaks will go over a few thousand. And it was quite laborious to even look at a single gene and determine the sequence. And single gene tests that became really available for the first time 20 years ago, but were extremely few, um, were just looking at one or two or three nucleotide differences. The ability to sequence the entire gene, several thousand nucleotides, in a given in patients on a clinical basis, is only about 10 years old, and it's only been the last several years that they really have become, there's been a lot of tests available, not just a few. Those single gene tests still are available, and they're still useful in certain areas, such as when the clinical manifestations in the patient suggest a particular disease, and they strongly suggest that disease. You can just sequence the gene for that disease, and then find a mutation or not, and not sequence thousands of genes. Um, the because there's a lot of work involved in that, those tests have typically been on the order of around two or $3,000 a test. So you can see that if you want to sequence 10 genes that cause like DNA depletion syndrome or something like that, it has around 10 genes, 15 genes or so that cause that. If you're doing individual gene tests, the amount of time and effort and money can easily become extremely um, high. So next-gen sequencing is the modern answer to that. And the next-gen sequencing machines you can see in the lower right. And there's four of them on the same bench. And that is from Cortigen. And you see that those machines are actually really much smaller. And they don't only sequence all the exons in a single gene, but those machines are used to sequence all the genes, 22,000 genes in a patient um, or a subset thereof. And if you can go two more slides, the one after that's a bit complicated. Um, oh, I see that slide's been removed, sorry. But um, it, we now have the capability of sequencing thousands of genes at the same time, and the amount of information that's gathered from that is immense, and it has to be um, put together on a computer. So why order a genetic test? And now on the slide that says five in the lower right corner. Well, you'll establish or prove an exact diagnosis. Um, to some degree, a lot of patients that have mitochondrial disease is not quite clear it's mitochondrial disease, or maybe many people don't believe it's mitochondrial disease and are not treating it as such. 
She's finding exact mitochondrial disease. She can justify the treatments that are being given. Um, you can certainly limit further diagnostic testing, or if the test is negative, you can start looking for other answers. And then finally, you have an answer so the diagnostic odyssey is over. It also, most of the time, determines the mode of inheritance. Is it recessive? What is your risk in future children? What is the risk in the children of my unaffected daughter? These sort of questions can be answered most of the time with a genetic diagnosis. Um, it will help guide therapy. Is CoQ really something that should be tried at high dose if it's not working so well? What about vitamin C? What about alpha lipoic acid? I can go on to 30 or so other ones. And many times, and I'm going to give you a lot of examples of that, it suggests new or different therapies that no one's ever thought of before. Sometimes they're used in other diseases. Sometimes they've never been tried before. Um, in addition, it's an investment for further knowledge. Um, and a lot of times we make diagnoses in silicon. In other words, we have a test could have come back negative. But later, we found the same abnormality in several other similar patients put it all together, describe a new disease, and then go back and say, you know, we found what we didn't see before in your patient. And that's happening quite often. I'd say about half the diagnoses that we've made at Cortigen have been delayed in that it wasn't really obvious the first time that we looked through. Also not on the slide, but it should be is some um, prenatal diagnosis. In some cases, and you can then test um, a baby very early during the pregnancy to determine if the baby has the disease or not, to determine whether to continue with the pregnancy or um, to treat immediately on birth. Okay, now I'm at slide six. This is a case report. This is Zig Zach. Um, he was around 14 or so when I took the picture. He's now eight, and he's huge, um, all muscle. And if you haven't noticed from his behavior just looking at these pictures, Zig Zach has autism. The next slide, number seven, goes over some of his manifestations. He has he lost language skills at one and a half years of age. He's been diagnosed with autism and tested with all the usual tests, and he really does have a diagnosis of typical childhood autism. At six years of age, he developed episodes of cyclic vomiting syndrome, in which he had nausea, vomiting, and lethargy that lasted for a few days or a week or more. And during these episodes, he was hospitalized. Um, for hydration purposes and for um, medications to make him feel better. And he had these episodes every month for years. Um, he had two episodes in which his, his um, muscles died, basically, in rhabdomyolysis. Um, complex regional pain syndrome was a major issue. His um, right foot was um, cold, purple, and tender. You just touch it and he would scream. He could even put a, a, a slipper on that foot. And he was in a wheelchair. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't bear weight. And so he was completely disabled by that. He was also on extremely high doses of narcotics, which was causing a lot of side effects and still in pain and unable to, to bear weight. Um, he had other chronic problems, particularly constipation that required multiple hospitalizations and procedures and severe exercise intolerance. He could even walk half a block, even after the problem with the foot was solved. You can see on the next slide, slide eight, this is his pedigree. Um, the individuals who have either black circles or black squares, some square meaning male and the circle meaning female, these, what these mean, the black ones, is that it's the same mitochondrial DNA as Zach. And Zach is the one that says autism in the, in the bottom, the center of the bottom of the slide. Um, that square there is big Zach. 
And you can see that there's many other relatives in the family that have a lot of um, mostly functional disorders. What do I mean by functional disorders? Is the symptoms are related to the function of the cell, not the structure of the cell. Um, pain, depression, fatigue, GI abnormalities. All of the people on that slide, with the exception of Zach and way over to the right, you see that there's a line through it. Um, Zach's uncle had actually died of, of his disease. All the other individuals in that slide are, are people that are doing fairly well. They have a lot of symptoms and have seen doctors and maybe on medications, but most are college educated, working, and are in generally good health, but they do have a lot of, a lot of issues. So you can see that the people with the same mitochondrial DNA sequence tend to have more disease than the people without the sequence. We sequenced the mitochondrial DNA over and over again, and we really didn't find any mutations. Um, there was an insertion at nucleotide 512, which is a normal polymorphism. About 5% of people have that. We now have data um, showing that that polymorphism is associated with cyclothymine syndrome. It says OA, that's odds ratio of 5. That means um, if you have that polymorphism, you're five times more likely to have cyclothymine syndrome than if you don't have that polymorphism. And we have data in a very large number of people. So that is probably part of the sequence in this family, which predisposes large numbers of people in the family to have functional disease. But that certainly isn't all of it. Certainly, Zach is more affected than that. Most people with uh, insertion 512 just have migraine or irritable bowel or something like that. So we went and sequenced all of the mitochondrial genes, all over 1,000. The next slide, number nine, shows that. So we sequenced the, what we call the mitocarda. It's all of the genes which have proteins in the mitochondria, um, mitochondrial and nuclear encoded. And we found a mutation in the CHAT gene, which is the gene that makes acetylcholine. So remember, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter. It's what is, goes from nerve cell to nerve cell. When a nerve cell fires, it gets to the end of the line. The um, nerve cells are not electrically connected together except for the neurotransmitters, which are released by the end of one nerve cell, floats to the other nerve cell, and then causes that nerve cell to fire or not fire, depending on if, it's, if it stimulates or inhibits the next nerve cell. Well, acetylcholine is a major neurotransmitter, particularly in the autonomic nervous system. Immediately upon finding that mutation, it became obvious a lot of the problems that he had. Um, he had very, very severe dysautonomia, including a lot of syncopil or POTS episodes. Any anticholinergic medication that he was given, he had very severe immediate side effects to it, and a lot of medications have anticholinergic effects to it. And he had episodes in which he would become demented. He, he would, had severe autism, but times in which he was demented and not able to even do the things he normally could do, which is similar to that of a person with Alzheimer's. People with Alzheimer's um, often have problems with their acetylcholine in their brain, and you use a drug which inhibits the breakdown of acetylcholine. When a nerve cell fires and acetylcholine is released, it doesn't sit there forever. There's an there's a enzyme which breaks it down so that the nerve cell can fire again and release acetylcholine again. This drug inhibits the breakdown of that acetylcholine. We can't give back more acetylcholine in this brain. But what we can do is keep the acetylcholine he has around longer. So he used the drug that's used in Alzheimer's. Um, and his episodes his got much better. He no longer had the episodes of dementia. His autism got much better. Before that, he had what was called echolalia, in which he would, if he said something, he would say it back. But he wasn't really 
talking to you, and you certainly couldn't converse. You couldn't say, what did you do today? And he would answer. Um, after we got that drug on there, he was much better, and we titrated it up to a high dose. He was able to speak in full sentences and talk about his state at some point. He's still retarded. He's still autistic, but the difference in his cognitive skills was remarkable. His, um, he also, a lot of his dysautonomia melted away. Um, previously, on just standard mitochondrial therapies like CoQ, amitriptyline, carnitine, etc., I'd gotten rid of his complex regional pain syndrome so that he was walking and um, he no longer had vomiting episodes. But this drug got rid of his dysautonomic episodes and his and increased his cognitive. So that now he, he's not normal by any means, but he enjoys life a lot more. So we found the same mutation. And another, in a girl on the next slide, number 10, and another mutation in a boy. That boy um, was in, he's in middle school, he was in gifted classes, and then he started having cognitive delays to the point that even though he's in middle school and he was in the gifted program, some days he couldn't do simple mathematics. He couldn't do 10 plus 23 on some days. Um, and even on good days, he was not up to grade level. We put him on the same drug that we put Zach on. His cognitive problems melted away, and now he's not only back to grade level, but he's caught up in all the things that he's missed before, and he wants to. Um, he has dreams about what he wants to do when he grows up. Um, the, the girl that you see on there is not cognitively impaired, but her dysautonomia had gotten to the point that she really couldn't go to school or do anything. And... Um, the drug in her, I haven't heard very much, but I've heard that she's gotten better. We've also done some other experimental things. We put a life shirt on these kids to show that the parasympathetic activity was incredibly low. And when we give them the drug, it, in, it improved dramatically um, and certainly improved in a statistical manner. So do these children have acetylcholine defect? Do they have CHAT deficiency, um, which is a neurotransmitter disease and not a mitochondrial disease? Um, the answer to that question is very complex. The individuals in the families that have this mutation that don't have other individuals in the family that have the same mutation, um, if they come from the mother's side of the family, they have the same kind of problems. So if they come from the father's side of the families, and we had several more families we found, tend to have a little bit of psychiatric disease, if anything, and not the rest of it. All of these families that I've mentioned, plus a couple more that we found since this slide was made, have maternal inheritance, as you saw in Zach's pedigree. So what it is is that if you have a mitochondrial abnormality and you have chat on top of that, you get this disease. So it's digenic. It's on both the mitochondrial and the nuclear genome um, that the disease is. And the treatment is hitting both of them at the same time. So it is a mitochondrial disease, but it's more complicated than that. The next case report is on slide 11. This is now 17-year-old who has had severe functional disease, chronic pain, migraine, myalgias, muscle pain, um, which has been described as functional. She also has depression, anxiety, panic disorder. She is so fatigued, she meets diagnosed the criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome, which a lot of my patients do, and has, was in homeschool and not able to keep up with her grade work, even though she's very bright. Tinnitus is ringing in the ears, pots is when she falls down, um, and, and sometimes even loses consciousness and vision when she's standing. Other dysautonomic symptoms that interfered with her life to the point that she was unable to do really anything except sit at home. 
Um, she wasn't even the proban in the family. Her brother was the proban, being the one that went to genetic attention. She was the sister that was picked up because of her brother went to the geneticist. Her proban had a lot of hypoglycemia, um, muscle pain. And then there's other individuals in the family that have functional disease, including fibromyalgia, depression, migraine. So we say, well, you know, there's, this looks like a typical mitochondrial disorder, and we had biochemical evidence showing the mitochondria was having difficulty. On, um, on typical therapy, CoQ, B100, B vitamins, and Zoloft, her symptoms got a lot better. Um, she was able to do some homeschooling, and she was in much less pain. Depression had gotten better, but she still was very affected. We sequenced the 1,000 genes in the mitochondria. The next slide, number 12, and it was just pretty complex. But what we found is we found a mutation in the sodium channel gene 4A. So what, what is a sodium channel? A, a channel is an opening from one side of a membrane to the next. This is the channel that sodium, which is salt basically, gets from one side of the membrane to the other, particularly in a nerve cell. So this is a channelopathy. Um, the channels are not part of the mitochondria. Um, I put the channels into our panel because channelopathies look very much like mitochondrial disease. If whether the channel's not working or the pumps don't have enough energy, you really get to the same problem in the neuron. And there's many other reasons to think that the two of them are the same. A lot of migraines are caused by channelopathies. A lot of other migraines are caused by mitochondrial defects. So the channels are all in the panel. Um, so we found a defect in the type 4 sodium channel, um, which is an autosomal dominant condition. We've also found that other people in the family that have the symptoms also have this mutation. This particular um, abnormality has been found before, and you can see about halfway down the slide, you can see that there's some conditions in which mutations in the 4A sodium channel have been described, mostly situations in which you have paralysis or um, tingling or loss of ability in certain muscles at certain times. And there's a drug, azazolamide, which is which helps a lot. She was put in azazolamide, and her symptoms have extraordinarily improved, so that now she's able to attend college, um, and it's going full-time to a four-year college at this point. Um, we would never have suspected this. So is this a mitochondrial disease? She does have mitochondrial dysfunction. The sodium channel defect causes her pumps, her sodium pumps, to work full-time. Uh, because the sodium is leaking and her pumps are going full time. Whether you have energy deficiency because your mitochondria can't make enough energy, or whether you have energy deficiency because the pumps have to work 24-7 and they use up all the ATP and there's nothing left for anything else, you have an energy deficiency state. It gets to the same problem. And so the reason for showing you these slides is to show you that Mitochondrial disease is a lot more complex than anyone ever thought before, certainly more than I had thought before. It is not just the mitochondria, but you have to look at the entire cell. Energy is what's needed for life. The difference between somebody who has just died and somebody who's alive just seconds ago or moments ago is energy. So, um, it's energy is needed for everything in life, and energy touches everything in the cell. So not only does this mean that energy can affect any part of the cell. You all know that mitochondrial disease can affect just about any part of the body. Um, but also, energy impacts on every single cellular function. So 
Getting a diagnosis in somebody with a mitochondrial disease requires a very integrated biological approach to that. Um, next slide, just these two kids. I mean, that's one of the questions people have is, how do you get an exact diagnosis? The slide after that is the electron transport chain. This is what typically people have thought about mitochondrial disease. It's the electron transport chain making ATP. And if, there are about 70, 80 or so proteins that are actually in the electron transport chain. But there are many, many more pro proteins that are needed for the chain to work, for the chain to assemble, for it to build all the pieces that are necessary to go into the chain, for all of the cofactors or vitamins that are needed for the chain to function, for all of the, for all of the transporters that transport all these functions into mitochondria. And I can go on and on and on on that. In the next slide, you can see that it's out of focus. In the middle, you can see the circles, the Krebs cycle. All of metabolism is involved in making energy to some degree, and it all is interplayed with everything else. So you also have all the metabolic pathways. But to really blow your mind, it's not just okay to look at all the metabolic pathways. You need to look at the cellular structure in general that has to do with energy metabolism. And the... Both cases that I mentioned before, the one with the chat and the one with the sodium channel, are defects that are not in the metabolic pathways and really require a larger approach. So I'm now on page 16, in which you see the crazy woman in the lower right-hand corner. Um, and I listed that from the Internet, but I feel like I'm okay because I put the, the website on there. But this is really where people have been um, on mitochondrial disease. If a single condition could be caused by mutation in hundreds, maybe even a thousand genes, and everybody in the family with the same genetic defect can, be, can have different disease manifestations, there's really very little called genotype-phenotype correlation. Like the rest of genetics, you have a particular clinical manifestation, you have symptom A, B, and C, and they say, oh, this is the cause of it. This is the gene that causes ABC syndrome. Well, in mitochondrial disease, you know that that's not the case, where chronic fatigue can be caused by a very, very large number of defects in and out of the mitochondria. Um, and the same genetic defect can cause a very large variety of disease. So the next slide is really the approach to molecular diagnosis. Um, you can see there that there's the mitochondrial DNA, and then there's the nuclear DNA, because both of those components make up a mitochondria. Standard mitochondrial DNA analysis, if you just, if your physician orders a mitochondrial DNA test, they will test for a few point mutations that are known to cause disease. Every lab tests for different ones. But most of the lab, most of the big labs out there test for on the order of 10 to 15 point mutations. That's out of the mitochondrial genome that's 16,000, um, about 500, 600 nucleotides. So it's actually most, it's 16,569, but everyone has a few more or less than that. Um, and the only test for, you know, the good labs test for about 10 to 15 point mutations out of that. They also do southern blotting for, or PCR or some other technique for large rearrangements. That means if you have 1,000 nucleotides missing, the test should find it. You have two nucleotides or 20 nucleotides or even 200 nucleotides missing, most of those tests will not find it. 
So they will find if there's a major part missing, usually over 500 nucleotides, but certainly over 1,000, or if you have one of the 10 or so nucleotide defects that cause some of the known syndromes. Every lab does 10 others, but the, the ones on there, the 3243, that's the Nalis mutation, the 8344, the MRF, the 8993, the NART. These are kind of the typical ones, and the other ones are dependent on the laboratory. And then you can do full mitochondrial DNA sequencing, and that's generally done by next-gen technology now. That's where the entire 16,569 nucleotide genome is sequenced. Obviously, the full sequencing has advantage. So if, but if you think that you had mitochondrial DNA analysis and it was normal, ask whether they had the full sequencing or not, and it was done by next-gen that can find heteroplasmy which means that you have two codes with the same nucleotide. Because if that wasn't done, they really haven't looked at your mitochondrial DNA. The next part is the nuclear testing. Until very recently, we could only do single genes or small panels. Um, like in Mingi, which is, causes the particular GI endocrine and intestinal problems, if you have an exact phenotype or clinical manifestations of Mingi, it makes sense to test for that particular gene. If you have COX deficiency, cytochrome C oxidase deficiency, it makes sense to sequence the COX genes, although more than half of the ones with COX deficiency don't have the things on the panel. But still, I mean, it makes sense. So the, there is a place for single gene testing, for pole gamma, gamma polymerase testing, if, you have, if it looks exactly like Alpert's syndrome. There are a place for single gene testing, and I still do send those tests off on my patients from time to time when something fits exactly. To go beyond that, um, is what most of the mitodocs or mitochondriacs are doing now. There are three steps beyond that. There's the mitoexome. Um, that's the approximately 1,100 genes that make up the mitochondria. And there are a couple companies involved in that and probably a few more that are going to be doing that, as well as cortigen. So in addition to the 1,000 or so genes that make up a mitochondria, so labs are adding in different ones. In cortigen, we add in all of the channelopathies, the other metabolic pathways, the peroxisomes, and a bunch of other things that can look mitochondrial. We're actually coming out now with a 1,900 gene panel that will be out soon um, to extend it to some additional channels, some additional abnormalities, including th some things that are kind of out there like um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and other things that can look sort of mitochondrial, some of the un more unusual dysautonomias, et cetera. So you say, well, why just do 1,000 or 2,000 genes? Why not do all 22,000 genes? That's called exome. I'm going to talk about that later. That's where you sequence every known gene. And then beyond that is the genome, where you sequence all of the DNA. All of the genes together, the exome, is only about 2% of the genome. So 98% of the genes are not coding. Um, right now, although we can sequence the genome, we don't understand it, and we're really basically interpreting the exome. So your choices really are go from single gene to a small panel, small panel, four genes, 10 genes. Um, sequencing all of the mitochondrial genes, about 1,000 genes, 2,000 genes, or all of the genes, 22,000 genes. Those are the different ones. So the next slide here is just the cortigen approach. The, the mitoseq is to sequence the entire mitochondrial DNA, and the nuke-seq is to sequence the approximately 1,200 genes that are involved in making the mitochondria from the nuclear side, and then, like I said, we're going to go up to about 1,900 genes. Okay. So how do, you, how do we interpret this? 
I'm just going to mention a little bit about this so you can understand some of the complexities of interpretation and understand more about when somebody says, well, we found this loose and we found that loose, which is a term you're going to hear a lot here. Loose is a V for variant, U for unknown or unclear, or you, know, you can put many other words in there, and S is for significance. Um, variants of uncertain or unknown significance. Basically, we have no idea what that means. Um, there's a lot of those that we find. Every single patient has a very large number of those. Um, and any one of those could be the mutation causing disease. But if you see something that looks like a mutation in a gene that we have no idea what it means, that's a loose. If you see something that may or may not be a mutation in a gene that may or may not apply, that's a loose. And we see these a lot. So the first step in, in, in figuring out what the patient has is to figure out that our sequence is right. So the data of the, of the sequence, which is between 10 and hundreds of millions of nucleotides, um, depending on the, the test that's done, is it's filtered. The first thing we do is to filter for coverage. If it's only been sequenced a few times, it might be wrong. We don't want to say mutations that are really just sequencing errors. Um, we want the mutation, we want the nucleotides to have been sequenced hundreds of times before that we can say, okay, this is a really good sequence. We really know that, th that this is real. So coverage is important on that. Um, we're also looking only at the coding regions. The next one here are the introns. Those are the areas that don't code. I'm, for those, most of you won't understand what a splice site is, but those that want to know that we do splice sites, we do look at the splice site. That's the part that pieces all the exons together so that you get one RNA out of it, not a whole bunch of different pieces. We do look at that in the introns. We don't look at anything else because nobody can interpret an intron sequence at this point. Um, we also, at this point, don't look at synonymous variants. I mean, like if it changes the amino acid to exactly the same amino acid, what's called a silent change. Those things can cause mutations, but at this point, we filter them out because we don't understand them at that point. So this leads to about 300 variants per sequence that we get. The next slide then it's, okay, so you found 300 variants in my child. Um, that's 300 variants versus the standard sequences. How do you know which ones are important? Well, you can see that there's three different parameters that we use at that point. Prevalence, how frequent is it? If it's seen in 20% of people, it's probably not important. If it's never been seen before, we need to take another look at that carefully. The next one is conservation. How often is it seen in other species? If at that particular point, that apes have a different sequence, it's saying that this protein can really handle a different code. On the other hand, if all the way back to fish have the same sequence, that's saying that if, if 100 different species have the same sequence, that's saying that a change in that amino acid at that point is not tolerated, or else it would have occurred. Most of even known mutations often will have some variation through the evolutionary cycle. And you can see exactly how far it goes back. And so that gives us an idea about how important that particular point is in there. The next one, we use computer algorithms. The computer algorithms take the protein, fold it in three dimensions, and look at it, and take it with the mutation, fold it in three dimensions, and look at it and see if it's different. They also look at evolution and conservation and a lot of other things. We use five different computer algorithms to that will give us predictions as to from very deleterious, very likely to be upsetting, to very likely to be normal and everywhere in between. And we kind of put all that information together. 
Then we look at, you know, what does the gene do? What's known about the gene? We look at not only at what is known about disease in humans, but what happens if you take that gene out of the mouse, the knockout mouse. We look at that data. We look at cell culture data. We look at all the data that anyone has ever looked at at that gene and say, what does it do? Is it plausible that that, that a defect in that gene would cause that disease? We look at the inherited, the, the mode of inheritance. If this is a gene that is recessive, meaning you have two copies that are a defect, and you find a mutation in one of those copies, and that's a carrier, probably has nothing to do with the disease, et cetera. Um, and we try to put all that information together, and this is an art as well as a science. And there are algorithms that, that we use, and we follow the generally described algorithms, but there's a lot of art into putting that, particularly trying to marry the, the clinical information in the patient with the genotypic information that's on the computer. The next slide here just shows all those waving lines and everything. This is Sanger confirmation, upper left-hand corner. This just shows that even though that we're very comfortable with the data that comes out of the next-gen sequencer, we do use standard Sanger sequencing in another laboratory from, another, from, an, from the DNA sample to confirm that that really is real, that it's not some, you know, variant that the computer came up with or that something flew into the test tube or something, that that is a real abnormality. If we're calling it a mutation, we verify that another method is really there. Okay, page 22, the number's now on, on the bottom in the center. Um, can't see it very well on my computer, probably can't on yours, but it gives you an idea of what a sample report will look like. The actual report is something like 20 pages long that goes over very large number of genes and genetic abnormalities in there for your, so if you have a mitochondrial physician, can look at each and every defect in every gene that we found to see that maybe they can connect it to the disease that I couldn't. But this summary page here is supposed to be so that your pediatrician can understand it as to how likely, what are the most important variants we found and how likely we think they are to be in, important in that patient. Also, what's not, you can see on the lower left-hand corner, we give specific recommendations, which is something that other labs don't do at this point, is as a clinician, I look at the situation, the clinical information that has been given on, that, on the child, and the information that I can get from the literature and from the DNA sequence, and I make suggestions to the physician as to what to do in terms of further testing or even, or, or even treatment suggestions. I'm not practicing medicine there and telling the physician what to do, but I'm trying to help the physician to understand some of the options that are there. And this is something to be discussed with the physician because I don't know your child as well as you do or your physician does, but I want to get some options at least to start the conversation, to start thinking about what can be done next. The next slide is just the report classifications. I've already gone over that. From negative to positive to the loose in the middle is um, how likely the change in the child's DNA is to be associated with disease. And the various, it's not black and white, unfortunately. There's a lot of gray in this. Okay, slide 24. What are our actual results? Um, we've done, I think, about 300 full mitochondrial DNA genomes at this point. And unfortunately, when we put this data together, it was only the first 112. But I don't think the slide has changed very much. This is what kind of data you can expect on the mitoseq or the mitochondrial DNA sequencing. You say, well, how often do you find abnormalities in the mitochondrial DNA? Well, the small circle on the left, you see that about 60% of the time, 
it's negative. We don't find anything. Um, and about 40% of the time, we find something that might be relevant. The circle on the right is that 38% blown up. So the, by far the largest one on there is the VUS. Um, what this is is it's a homoplasmic. That means all of the mitochondrial DNA have the same sequence. And it looks like it causes disease, but we, we don't know for sure. Um, I can tell you that I see those in a lot of my patients, and some of them are probably mean nothing. Um, the computer predicted it to be abnormal, and, and, but it probably has nothing to do with the patient now. But a lot of those are patients with maternal inheritance, where everybody in the family, or almost everybody that has the same mitochondrial DNA sequence, has some sort of migraine, irritable bowel, de you know, depression, chronic fatigue, et cetera, et cetera. And we find what looks to be a deleterious defect in all of these relatives on 100%. And so a lot of these are actually the cause of maternal inheritance in the family. Um, where that is in the mitochondrial genome can sometimes give us ideas as to how to treat it. If it's in complex one, a lot of CoQ sometimes helps, maybe riboflavin. If it's in complex four, um, vitamin C. Not that these are always effective, but a lot of times they are. And certainly it does give me an idea. In the lower right, you see the red and the orange. These are ones we're calling mutations. We think that these are clear-cut mutations that are causing disease in, the, in, in that individual. The difference is, is that the red have been found in the literature before, and the orange are ones that have not been found before. There are new mutations that are not in the literature, and we're publishing those as new mutations to be in the literature. Um, the the um, purple is the one that we found that um, other groups haven't spoke about. That's multiple heteroplasmies. That's that there are more than one nucleotide in the mitochondrial DNA that have two codes. And those we're finding are, um, we find that very frequently in the patients, and we don't find those in the controls. Um, if you can see the next slide here, slide 25, you can see that one heteroplasmic change are seen in about a third of the negative controls, those are normal people, and about one third of the clinical samples sent for, for, for sequencing because they thought it was mitochondrial disease. But two or more heteroplasmies are only found in the clinical samples, um, and that's statistically significant. We think what this means is that the mitochondria are not working right. There's mitochondrial dysfunction for whatever reason, and therefore the mitochondrial dysfunction is causing more reactive oxidative species, damaging mitochondrial DNA and causing the heteroplasmies. It's sort of like lactic acidosis. It doesn't say what's wrong with the patient, but it says there's something wrong with the mitochondria. A lot of the time, we do find the exact mutation in the mitochondria. In some cases, we still haven't found it yet. But it is something that helps to say, yes, there is some mitochondrial reality in the patient. Okay, slide 26 is our data in the first 182 probands. That means one individual per family. If we do five people in the family, it only counts once. So the first 182 families of the NUCSEQ looking at all the 1,000 genes in the, in the nuclear one. Again, we've done about 400 patients so far, but um, we analyzed the data after the first 182. You can see about half of them are normal, um, and about half of them are not normal. If you look at the top there, the red, are ones in which we found something that we believe is related to disease. And either it was proven or it's extraordinarily likely to be. So it's 14% are related to disease. The, the VUSAs are the, are the blue ones on the bottom. Those are, we think it's related to disease, but we don't know yet, and we're not quite sure. And 
more testing has to be done or more scientific advance, advances. Um, the yellow means that it hasn't been, it's really pending. We don't really have a diagnosis yet. We say, we think this is the mutation. We need to confirm it by another test. But nobody, the physician and the family haven't done that test yet. Or we think this is the mutation. We need to confirm that by showing both parents don't have the mutation because if one of them had it, they would be affected. If they're not affected, then that's probably not it. But we haven't gotten the parental DNA yet. So those are really ones we think are positive that we want to continue more testing, but that testing hasn't been done. So what I want to show this slide is, you know, about half the time we find something that looks like it's real. And it's extremely important that we get good clinical data on your child, for not just for what we're doing, but for any lab. Because if this particular mutation causes a particular problem and we don't have any clinical data on your, on your patient, we're going to call it a boost. If this particular mutation causes a certain type of epilepsy and we have no clinical information, we have no idea what that means. And we're going to say, we don't know. But if, you, if we have the clinical information showing your patient has that particular type of epilepsy, then that gets a red. Um, we found a mutation, that's what the kid has. Or if your patient has no seizures whatsoever, we'll say, well, it doesn't seem to sit. We don't think this is anything. It might get a green or maybe a question or something. So clinical information and follow-up are critically important. Okay, slide 27 is just a, um, if somebody thought, you know, well, who is the normal person that we're, we're comparing the sequence data against? You know, that's a big question. Who is really normal? So what we did, of course, is we sequenced ourselves. We sequenced employees at Cortigen and other scientists around the world um, that had been helping us to validate this testing. They tested the people in their laboratory. So those are, we're all real normal people in genetics, right? Um, no, <laughs> not really. Um, this is an example of, I called one of my friends, it's a scientist somewhere else, and I got real excited. It says, you know, one of the patients has a defect in one of the porphyria pathways, which is in making heme for hemoglobin for red cells. Um, porphyrias look a lot like mitochondrial disease. You can get um, psychiatric and liver and neurological manifestations that come and go from time to time. And it, I, he said, no, this is not one of the patients I sent you. This is one of the um, people in my lab, um, which then, of course, I panicked. And I said, oh, we found a mutation in one of the people in your lab. Maybe this test isn't working so well. This is one of the first sequences we did, by the way. But then when we looked into it, the picture on the left is a picture of that person's arm that we got the sequence to, someone that works in his lab. And the picture on the right is I lifted that from the Internet from that disease. And you can see that we found uh, a mutation that proves a particular disease in that person working in the laboratory, a type of porphyria. So, you know, it's what is normal really requires a, a bit of thought. Um, we use several different databases that each have more than 1,000 people in it. But, I mean, if, if your child has ADHD or you have migraine or chronic fatigue or something, you're not likely to be excluded from these databases. So when we find things that predispose towards common disorders, you're going to find a lot of people in the databases that have these sort of problems. And nobody is normal. Everybody has genetic abnormalities. Nobody lives forever. Nobody, you know, nobody has the Nobel Prize and is the gold medal, you know, Olympic-type athlete. So everybody has defects. And um, the databases have to be looked at carefully. Okay, a few other cases to show you 
the type of thing that sequencing can do. This little girl um, has really bad GI motility. I'm on slide 28 now. Um, on full TPN, she, gets, she can't even take a teaspoon of liquid in her gut. It causes her, her intestines to blow up, her belly gets large, and she gets in tremendous pain, even from a very, very small amount. So she's on full TPN. Everything is given through a vein. You can see her central line on her arm. She has the tube in her belly to, um, to, to take out the natural secretions and to blow it, to get rid of the gas, to vent. Um, and she can see some of the other things that she's had there. She's had um, chronic fatigue. She was sleeping 22 hours a day. That's not an exaggeration. Hypoglycemia, even on 24-hour drip feedings, and many other problems. And she had a mitochondrial disease. She had 7% activity in muscle biopsy on something on complex 1. We found a mutation in TRAP1. TRAP1 is a gene that nobody had ever found a mutation in it before. Um, it is a chaperone. Um, a chaperone is, something, is, is someone that gets somebody else where they're supposed to be and they're not supposed to do anything they're not supposed to do while you're getting them there. Well, a molecular chaperone does the same thing. A chaperone is a protein that gets another protein where it's supposed to go whether that's the mitochondria or the nucleus or whatever, and it doesn't do something like fold wrong on its way there. The TRAP1 protein chaperones a lot of the antioxidant defense proteins. And um, individuals that, I mean, mouse model, that if you take out the TRAP1 gene, they have problems with antioxidant defense. And if you do this in cell culture, they have a lot of, the cells have difficulty because they cannot get rid of their um, oxidants. But if you give very large amounts of antioxidants to the cell culture, the cells become normal. So we noticed that we now have about 18 families with TRAP1 defects, and most of them having the same mutation, the common um, I235B mutation. Um, I think we have 14 families with that mutation. Every single kid of that 14 has, actually 13 out of the 14 have a triad. They have GI problems, usually severe, chronic pain, and chronic fatigue. One of them has two of the three and not the third one. I can't remember. But 13 out of 14 have the triad, and the other one has two of those. So it's very tight in terms of the phenotype. They all have exactly the same problems. Um, some of them have other problems. Some of them are autistic, but most of them are not. Family members that have a TRAP1 defect can have the same triad, or they can have nothing at all, particularly if it's on the father's side of the family. Most of these families are maternally inherited, so it looks like the TRAP1 gene plus the mitochondrial DNA abnormality causes disease. That makes sense because a normal person doesn't make a lot of antioxidants, and having one TRAP1 defect probably doesn't cause a lot of problem. But if you have mitochondrial disease and you're making a tremendous amount of prooxidants, having half the antioxidant around is probably not good. The other thing that we're noticing is all the mutations are in a very small part of the TRAP1 protein, the ATPase domain that breaks down ATP, and we're still trying to figure out exactly how that does that. Interestingly, if you have two mutations outside of the ATPase domain, you get Lee syndrome in two patients. But anyway, that's something completely different. So, so many of these patients are mine, including the little girl that you saw on the last slide. When we give them antioxidants, they've gotten better. CoQ is an antioxidant, vitamin C and vitamin E. It's part of the mitococcial, and I've noticed on a lot of these kids, before we even knew what TRAP was, that they got better. But now that I know that the problem, we're now giving tremendously high doses of antioxidants, including N-acetylcysteine, which is used in Tylenol overdoses, but it's part of the cocktail some people use. 
and the patients are getting much better um, on the um, anacetylcysteine. In fact, the problem is that the anacetylcysteine is so incredibly powerful that when you give it, they automatically get much better, and then a few hours later they get worse again, and you get this up and down problem, which causes trouble with glucose control. Some of the kids were given it as continual IV because they aren't PPN anyway, um, which just seems to be fixing that problem. So again, it's finding the exact abnormality can be extremely helpful in some kids. There are some other ones here I want to go through really quickly. We don't have time to go through a 10 million case report, but I, we have like 40 I could go through. This is a, a kid that's not one of my patients that was one of the cortigen ones that was sent from somewhere on the East Coast that we found a defect in a gene involved in folate metabolism. Um, and this individual had a tax that like a drunk or a one-year-old walks and developmental regression had lost abilities. And folinic acid and glycine, which is, makes sense on this particular abnormality, I don't know, it's complex. Um, the family has had a tremendous improvement in terms of skills um, and ataxia. Um, the next one is a little girl that had extremely severe cardiomyopathy. That's the heart muscle wouldn't it could have no pumping power basically, and was almost almost died in the in the um, in the first couple of days of life. Geneticists saw the patient said it might be mitochondrial. Put the kid on the cocktail. Um, got a little better, went home, was having very severe cardiac problems on a lot of drugs, and was on the transplant list. We found a defect in CoQ2, which is one of the enzymes that makes CoQ. Um, on retrospect, the, um, the CoQ dose had not been increased for a while. It was actually quite small. We put the kid on extremely high levels of CoQ, and the heart function completely normalized, and the child's off the transplant list. The, um, the next one here is just to show you that if a patient that has tick disorder, we've actually found six different genes which are associated with tick so far, defects in those genes, none previously published. But in this particular kid, we found a mutation that predicts that this child would have seizures and not ticks. And the, the physician put the patient on an anticonvulsant, and the, um, the so-called ticks went away. Um, and then the next one, we're now on slide 33. This is a child that died of Lee's disease um, at one and a half years of age. And the parents desperately wanted to have more children, but they didn't want to go for a 25% chance. And all standard testing failed to find what the problem was. And we did next gen on the parents and found that they both had mutations in the IRS gene, which is complicated, but it does. It basically puts the isoleucine onto the tRNA for protein synthesis. Um, no one's ever found a mutation in the IRS gene before, but genes in the other proteins that make the other amino acids, um, in other words, very similar genes to this one have been found to cause Lee's disease. But this, this makes sense. Um, a tissue sample that was found in this kid showed they did have both mutations. So we were able to do prenatal diagnosis, and um, the family has since had a healthy baby. Um, the next one, I, I'm not going to go into this one. This is very complex. But it just shows that it's a disease um, that um, is paroxysmal non-kinesthetic um, dyskinesia. It's a very long name. In adults, it causes um, where you can't move your arms or legs when you've had alcohol or caffeine. Um, and we found that a child who had intermittent walking problems and severe diarrhea on um, had a defect in that gene, um, and finding the problem, uh, we were to put the kid on, on therapy, and the problem has gone away. But anyway, 
the point to bring that up is it's not always something that is a um, a new d d defect that's never been found before. We find completely different manifestations of genes that are known to cause other diseases as well that no one would have ever thought about sequencing that gene. The next one, page 35, are actually this is probably six months old now, so we could probably have five of the slides that are not finished, are some of the known conditions. These are conditions that are in the literature that are known that we found abnormalities in. And most of this will mean nothing to anybody in the group, but those that know that will say, almost none of those are what I think about mitochondrial disease. Some of them are, but most of those are not genes that people would have thought of as they really are mitochondrial. They were put into the panel because they might cause a mitochondrial type defect because they had to do with neurotransmitters or channelopathies, or they were known phenocopies like Angelman syndrome, meaning it can look mitochondrial. Um, the next slide, 36, is a, um, some of you might know that folinic acid is used in a lot of patients with mitochondrial disease, um, kind of indiscriminately to some extent, and some patients get a lot better, and a lot of patients don't, and some patients get a little bit better. Well, we found that there are two mutations in the folic acid pathways in a lot of patients that were sent to us, and this goes over what the problems were and the genes we found the mutations in. One mutation means a carrier status, so you think that wouldn't do anything. But with your carrier status in two different genes that make folate or take folate and do what you're supposed to do with it, um, it seems to be very common. We have not in a negative control yet found one case that has two mutations. It's, it's statistically significant, but it's a little bit difficult to work out that. And this is probably the rationale as to why folinic acid is helpful in some mitochondrial patients. Um, many of these patients have gotten better on folinic acid, but it's anecdotal data, and we really need to put it together in a scientific way. Okay. Um, the next one, that was 36. So I guess the next one would be slide 37. Um, this boy right here, um, Dylan, has been on TV news many, many times in the LAR. I think he's been in national news, and his, his, his information is all over the Internet. Um, and by the way, all of the cases that I'm talking about we've either are to the point that no one would have any idea who it is or that they've given, particularly the ones that I give names or information on, we've gotten permission on. But Dylan is a, a Lego expert. He, the Lego Corporation in Denmark has said that he is an official Lego expert um, and that he builds these tremendously complex things. Um, he has multiple problems, as you can see on the next slide, um, and it's multi-system failure, in, in fact, and he's um, not doing so well. Um, because his problems seem to be more in the inflammation and immunodeficiencies, I went to exome screen sequencing on him, to sequence the entire exome, not just the mitochondrial part, and found a mutation in a phospholipase C gamma 2 gene, which is a disorder of inflammation, as expected what the problem is. And uh, the NIH had mentioned that they, have, they know of a few other patients with this defect. It's just been described last year for the first time. Um, and using that information, we've, we know what we're dealing with now and are better at treating him, but it is a really horrible disease, and we're having difficulty effectively treating. But this is to, to show you that there is a place for exome and there is a place for panel. The next test is to, to take the two apart. But um, what, it, what I mean by a panel is a large panel, like to do all of the genes in the mitochondria. What I mean by exome is to do all the genes. The 1,000 or 2,000 genes that are mitochondrial-related 
or possibly so, versus to go from 2,000 to 22,000 genes. So the difference is, is that you look at all the genes of the exomes, you'll pick up things that you didn't find before. Um, but you will have a lot more VUSAs. We find a lot of VUSAs in the panel. When you do exome, you find an extraordinary number of VUSAs. Um, I'll get to incidental findings later. The exome shows a tremendous more. When you do exome, nobody can be an expert on everything. So you get, you're probably going to a lab that's not an expert in the particular area that your child has. If you do a panel, you can get an ex, you can go to a place that they're experts on that. We know the mitochondrial DNA. We know the mitochondrial exome. Gene by gene, they're all our friends. And I, none of them really surprise me anymore. We've done interpretations on all of them. I know there's 1,200, but we've been doing this for a long time and have gotten to know those. If you, if you have cancer, it's better to go to a cancer specialist. If you have a clotting disorder, it's better to go to that. So there is an advantage in the panel. Um, and then the next slide, which is really just, you know, what's the difference? I use exome in my practice. I use panels in my practice. If I think the patient has a mitochondrial disease, I'm pretty sure that this is a mitochondrial problem. It's better to go to the panel. The abnormalities like the trap, the chat, all these things, these folate abnormalities, they would not have been found in exome. You can't go through 22,000 genes with a fine-tooth comb through every variant in every gene. Um, they would have been missed. But then the fossil gamma lipase deficiency um, would have been missed on panel. It, um, you have to do the exome. So if you're really not sure it's mitochondria, you don't know what it is, exome's the way to go. That's what I do with my patients. If I think it's mitochondrial, I start with panel. Some of them I reflex to exome if I don't find anything on the panel. The next slide is what do I mean by incidental findings? Well, that's the official word. You're looking for something and you find something else. You find that there's a risk, a gene that gives you risk for cancer, or for Parkinson's, or Huntington's, or some other neurodegeneration. A gene that can lead to sudden cardiac death, a drug interactions, anesthesia complications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On a panel, you do find some of those. For, exa for example, the malignant hyperthermia gene, we do find in some patients with mitochondrial disease seem to have that defect, particularly if they have muscle problems. So it's on the panel. So we will find people that are at risk for death if they get a certain anesthetics. That's kind of information which is important to know, but it's information that you didn't sign up for when you did that. There are incidental findings on the panel. If you do the exome, you find a tremendous number of incidental things, risks for diseases you've never heard about before. Different labs vary in terms of if they will tell you or not, and when they'll tell you, and how much you can decide what you want to know. But if you do want to do exome, and this is important to you, make sure that you know what that lab's going to tell you and what it's not. And that it falls in with what you want to know. The other is the VUSAs, the variance of unclear significance. There will be some on a panel. There will be a lot on exome. So if you go one more slide, now you get the disclosure risks. These are the types of things you can see regardless if you do panel or exome. Uh, more so with exome, but to a degree you get it with the others. Discla risk of disclosure. Do you want your data of all of your genes? including those genes that may be for risk for diseases that have not even been contemplated yet on some computer somewhere where who knows where they can get at it. Um, there's a law called GINA, which is out there, it's federal law, that states that they cannot use this information for discrimination in employment or for health insurance. The health insurance company cannot say you're at risk for cancer, we're going to raise your premiums, or that you're at risk for having 
complications, um, we're not going to hire you. We're going to put you in a lower position. That is illegal. If a company wants to use this to deny you for life insurance or make the policy sky high or for disability insurance, it's perfectly legal at this point. So I think it's wrong, but it's legal. Um, if this information is sitting on the laboratory server, it's extremely unlikely that other companies will get to it. That hasn't happened yet. We do not believe that that's going to happen or that society will allow it to happen, but some people have concerns. That is the reason to sequence less genes than more genes in some people's eyes. Um, family secrets. If you are related to your spouse, we will know. If daddy is not daddy, we will know. What we do with this information varies on how important it is. If, you know, if, if, I mean, to some extent, that information needs to get out in some cases. If the father is your brother, we need to talk to, you know, we need to call the police. And that does happen, by the way. Uh, and if we don't tell if daddy's not daddy, but what in the situation when there's a 25% chance it'll happen again, but not, it won't. You know, there are situations that are, that become dicey and that the, the decision has to be made as to what the best course of action is for the child. We take confidentiality very seriously, but there are issues of the child and there are issues of the law that come in there. Um, for most people, this is not a concern whatsoever. Um, but for some people, it is. Remember, you can't lie to your genesis. Okay. Next slide. 43. Um, I know I'm running out of time, so I can't give this justice, but this is a 14-year-old patient of mine wrote this. And it's not only is it beautiful, but this is the best. I've never seen anybody ever describe um, functional disease quite as well before. The next one are some of the functional disorders. There are more than 40 different functional disorders. And at least what I think are the major issues that, you know, when, do, when, is, when is it um, chronic fatigue syndrome versus just someone who's tired? I mean, you can be tired with lupus or cancer or AIDS or just the flu, right? When is it fibromyalgia versus just aches and pains in a 60-year-old? When is it migraine versus just headache? These are some of the things that make me think of it. You know, these are not the official diagnostic criteria, but when I start thinking, ah, it's probably one of these conditions. The, um, the functional disorders are an indication to do mitoaxone because that's what I've been doing my research in for the, you know, the last 20 years, and we have found a lot of sequence variation which predicts these particular conditions, particularly when these conditions are multiple. Um, like there's multiple different things in cyclothalamine syndrome, multiple different genetic defects that I've been finding that often predict um, that therapy will work with a certain drug or a certain vitamin or something. Um, the next one is 45. It's just some of the things about cortigen. I'm going to go over that one. Uh, these are some of the, like, we have a turnaround time in weeks. We get diagnosis usually in four to six weeks. We'll get the report. Um, the, they'll help you get it for insurance, for insurance and everything like that. Um, some of the limitations between the mitochondrial exomes. Um, it's not all the genes. It's not 100%. You know, that we don't recognize these sort of things. We, and then the next two slides are 47 and 48. Um, if you are interested in, in doing this, this is, will help you and your physician as to what to do in order to get cortigen testing done. Um, the company did 47. I did the next slide, 48. 
sort of a um, and you know easier version of the same thing, but basically it's what you need. What tests? Um, Mitoseq, NukeSeq, do both, um, actually, because so many patients I find defects in both the mitochondria and the nuclear genome, on all of my patients, I recommend that both of those be done if I think it's mitochondrial disease. Um, FDSeq and epilepsy, I didn't really go over that. If their seizures are a major part of what's going on, sequence the seizure genes, then we're going to have the autism test up pretty soon. If autism is a major part, or any autistic spectrum disorder is a major part, we're going to do that. And by the way, we have lots of patients that we found mitochondrial abnormalities that were autistic, as I mentioned one, a, a, a case. And there's several others that have benefited from finding the exact abnormality. Okay, um, the next slide. Um, the future is here, but nobody knows that yet, practically. It is with a saliva sample, and by the way, if your kid can't spit in there because it's an infant or autistic or something, we can send a phlebotomist to your home to get blood. But from a saliva sample, we can get a practical, rapid answer to the problem. Um, in many cases, it's cost-effective. I have several patients that have had hundreds of hospitalizations that are almost never not hospitalized now that we have the exact defect in the treatment. So if you think about all the costs that these patients would have, it's cheaper to do the test than not overall. PPOs cover it, most HMOs. Um, HMOs just started hitting this. Some are more evil than others, what can I say? Um, we find a lot of positives, but certainly not every patient's positive. About half of them, we still can't find anything. Um, often leads to therapy. So it's great and everything, right? But you can see, I mean, you have a diagnosis of some weird condition that no one's ever heard of before. Nobody in the world knows what to do with it. Your doctors aren't going to know. The hospital's not going to know. The emergency room's not going to know. Your insurance company's not going to know. So we, it, when you're on the cutting edge and you get new information, it can be frustrating. Um, and, you know, that's just unfortunately part and parcel of being on the cutting edge of knowledge. Um, the costs are still high, even though that they are decreasing over time, and I think it's very cost-effective. We do find incidental findings from time to time that are not what you bargained for, and some people have unreasonable expectations that we can cure. We can find out what's wrong in every patient, not true, and then every time we find out what's wrong, we can cure them, not true. A lot of them get better, a lot of them don't. In my own patient population, I've been able to find the abnormality that is likely to cause the disease in most, not all, maybe two-thirds. Um, and about half of those, we found maybe two-thirds, a little bit more than half, I find something that helps, that, um, and they get better because of the therapy based on the genetic information. So it's, it helps a lot, but it doesn't help everybody. And then um, I'm a geek at heart, and my daughter loves to have her picture out there. So that's the next slide, and her witch outfit. And then the very last slide, number 52, is something to say often and loudly. And that's it. Great. Dr. Bowles, thank you so much. It's, it's amazing how much this field has progressed in the last couple of years. You know, um, even, even from about a year ago when we talked about sequencing, so much has happened. And I think one of the takeaway messages from your discussion today is that you know, um, maybe two years ago the question was, well, why would I want to know, right? Like, why mm -hmm. bother? I can yes. just assume I have mitochondrial disease and go on and move forward. Why would I want to know? And I think that you've given some rather compelling reasons in your case studies today on why you would want to know because you actually can start to associate 
um, your, your treatment approaches with that understanding, right, of where that mitochondrial disease or what the genetic information is. Yes, it's actually, I've been surprised at how successful this is. I knew this was going to be a big thing, but it's actually exceeded my expectations. So I'm very happy with the, where technology and science are going. And, and so is the mitochondrial population. Um, you know, for the, I speak for the patients and families when I say that we're all kind of still, you know, stuck in the mud in the middle of this, you know, becoming more clear. And, and so we as the patients and families and even primary care physicians, I think we're on the receiving end of a lot of confusing information overload. And it's important to have um, the ability to advocate for yourself or your child or your family member and to ask intelligent questions and to also, you know, know when something's worth looking into further and when something is, as we all were wondering, what does that VUS mean, right? And so as you pointed out, it takes a, it takes a second step to look into that um, to understand it. Um, Dr. Bowles, how are you on time? Can we take a couple I'm, questions? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, super. So I'm going to unmute everyone. Um, I'll remind you guys that you can also email me questions, and I do have a couple that have come in to, by email, so I'll get to those as well. So bear with me just one second. I'll remind you to use star six to mute and unmute your line, please, in case we have any background noise. Okay, bear with me one second. Okay, so um, one email um, question I got was from Nicole. Nicole, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay, do you want to go ahead with your question? Sure. Hi, Dr. Bull. Thanks for Hello. Um, I have a son who is seven with a mitochondrial disease, um, and he had um, the mitochondrial DNA whole genome sequencing back in 2009. And I guess I have a couple questions. He had two variants that were found that were both homoplasmic, and we have since been told um, because they were homoplasmic, they are likely not disease-causing. And I want to know what your thoughts were on that. It's a good question. Um, this is an area that is very complex and it's somewhat controversial. Um, it depends on the family. Um, let me give you two examples. If your family has a lot of functional-like disease, uh, pain, fatigue, GI, um, mood disorders like depression, anxiety, panic, and everybody in the family has it at 100%, but everyone has symptoms, then that is completely consistent. It doesn't prove that that is the cause of not something else in the sequence, but that is consistent. On the other hand, if your child is the only one who's affected in the family, and everybody else in the family has the same defect, the same variant, then that probably means that it doesn't cause disease. It may be contributing to disease. It may be that you need that plus a nuclear abnormality. Um, one other caveat. Sometimes, the mother is heteroplasmic and the child is homoplasmic. I mean, you may be 50% have no disease and the child 100% has disease. So, if sometimes we do is we do this same test on the mother. And I have been tested and I have also been found to be homoplasmic. Uh-huh. So, that would depend on, on what you have. I mean, if, if you have the same variant and you have disease as well, then that's probably related. If you don't, it's probably not. Okay, and this was in 2009. Is there any reason to do anything as Anything that has changed that would be different than the whole genome sequencing that was done then? For the mitochondrial genome, no. Um, 
but it would be, they may interpret it in a new light, because people might say, well, we didn't understand that then, but we understand that now. Okay. But also, there's the nuclear genome to look at, because it may be something a nuclear genome can Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, and, you know, that leads me to a question that I got over email. Let me just remind everybody, if you have any background noise, to use star six to mute your line. Um, another question that came in over email then, Dr. Bowles, which you can address, um, this question was from Jennifer, is when do you start to test the parents? Um, you know, if you do you feel quite confident that you can really understand whether something is um, inherited from the mom, or do you assume it's spontaneous, and how do you know to what degree to start testing other families? It's a very good question. Uh, up until this point, we have been getting the parents' DNA when we felt that we needed, which is probably about every other one, maybe even 60%. If, the, if it's completely normal, then there's no need to test the parents because we don't know what we're testing them for. If the mother has disease as well, and it's some disease that's unusual or something, often we like to sequence both of them and compare the sequences to compare them. Same thing with two siblings. If two siblings have the same disease, we like to see, you know, most of the diseases will fall out because only one of the siblings has it. Um, I would say that there are many situations in which we need the parental DNA. If it's a new, if it's a mutation that suggests dominant disease, and it's a bad mutation, and it causes bad disease, like infantile spasms. If one of the normal parents has that mutation, it's probably not disease causal. If both parents don't have it and it's a new mutation in the child, it's extremely likely to cause the disease. We flag that as red. So there are other situations in which many people in the family have functional disease, and we think this is the cause of it. Well, if that's the case, the people in the family that have functional disease should have the gene defect, and the people that don't shouldn't. So... I mean, now we're actually talking about changing our policy to get the DNA from the parents up front with sample. Because we find an answer, and then we say we need the parents' DNA, but because of inertia, mostly probably with the physician's standpoint, because we're all so busy, it takes us forever to get the parents' sample, and a lot of times we never do. And so we're just stuck with this report that says, you know, we don't know, give us more. So. We're thinking of getting the parental samples off the bat so that we can do that. If somebody, for whatever reason, doesn't want to give us those samples and wants to hold or, you know, not give it, or if they want to send it on just one parent, we can work with that. And I think um, that brings up a point that, again, speaking from a, a patient and family advocacy perspective, when you're having your genetic testing done, um, one of the reasons why MitoAction has really embraced partnership with Cortigen is that you want to know that the company is invested in um, furthering the field through those results and that you don't just kind of have your results, oh, here's what we know right now, and then they go off into the black hole and are never really compared again. You want to know that as new information emerges, because collectively when more patients are being tested, then we can start to match better what syndromes might look like or what treatments might be effective, you want to know that at some point the, that your results are going to be reconsidered over time. Also. Right. That's, we have a very major commitment towards that. In the first, you know, six months or so that we were doing this, most of the results that are now positive in the first six months were called out as negative or we are the reverses. 
that we find the same defect in the same gene in similar patients over and over again, and we went back and reclassified it and spoke to the family, particularly the trap ones. The first trap ones that we found, it was the VUS. I looked at that very carefully with some literature. I said, hmm, this might be the cause of the disease, but I have no idea. Um, and then we saw it over and over again. We went back and contacted those families, and a lot of them are doing better on therapy. So, yeah, it's, that's the way that it's got to be, to go back and to look at that. And so a negative result now may be positive later. And that's really critical. So families, you need to know that going in so that you can – be asking the right questions and be understanding, you know, what what this means for you both now, but what it what it could mean um, a year from now also. Um, other questions from our audience members? Along those lines. Sorry, do you have a question? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I I just I had a question kind of related to that. Um, Go ahead. I should. Were we lucky because somebody is following up our our one that was considered um, probably. Um, What's the word with the gene? The, the, the protein function. I can't think of the name. Oh, possibly deleterious or probably deleterious? Deleterious. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, okay. Right? Deleterious. So, we're, I mean, how lucky can we be? And so, I don't know of anybody else this has been found in, this particular one, but it's been it's a family of proteins, and there are, there's no disease in people with other, with people with other family members, proteins that have problems in the same family member. I mean, the same family of proteins. Um, and we got, we got, we have that, and then we have things that that um, we hear about um, that are that are so much more common in the population, like the MTHFD1, and we have OCD in our family, and just, I just thought that I'm, I have no idea if that means anything, or the the, the, the Charcot-Marie tooth possibly related one, KIF, I want to yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to be so scrambled. I'm, I'm just trying I, to... No, I understand. But, but or, I... I am so grateful to you, doctors. You have, a few of you have emailed with me, and I feel so badly because you work so hard in a world where there aren't, where there's not enough support. And I don't want to take more of your time and drag you up the wall. And I'm so thankful to you. And I guess what I would like to know is, how can is there a place where I can sort of put my family's information with the other family's information? And and is there a way to sort of be on the lookout for for um, possibly coming out information about these various things without driving the researchers crazy by I mean the last thing you need is a gajillion people emailing you all all the time. So like um so we have the experience with one, the MTHFT one, which is quite common and unless this other one where as far as I know it's never been found before and recommendations for what people do with the various situations that would make it easier So that's a great question. So that's a great question for Doctor Bowles. So Doctor Bowles, what do you think about that? Um well, there's a couple of things in there. First of all, you mentioned two genes that we are actively looking at very carefully and that we are data mining. So as we get more and more patients to understand if there is something real and what that means. And both of those are in the category that they look promising, but I, I, I couldn't tell you for sure that they mean something or not yet, but they're, they look promising. Um, you know, it's... We are looking at that, but how do families know what we're looking at and everything like that? I think that's something that, John, you're on there, I know, that um, the company is going to have to look at. is a way that the families can contact the company and they can say, no, nothing yet, or yes, in fact, you know, there is some way that you can help us, that we can help you or something. And um, we're inventing the wheel here. Is I mean, we're doing this for the first time to really look at every variant in every gene and to correlate it with every patient. And um, we haven't invented the perfect wheel yet, um, but hopefully with time it will get better. 
I'm grateful to you, and I know a lot of patients are so grateful. And if, and if there's some way that we can just kind of pass on our information in a safe way, and, you know, I'm sure that, that people like you would make it a safe way that we that then and that we could, um, you know, because I got my I got my from a different company, but I know the field is small and that the people in the field are colleagues. And yeah. I, you know, I have this information. I'd love to share it with your company. I'm I'm sure all the companies and all the scientists would like to share. And I, I need to give somebody else a chance. But just touch uh, my okay. reaction. As, What's your name? I'm sorry. What's your first name? Uh, I'm Erica. Okay, so Erica, um, actually, if you'll stay tuned and if you get, if you subscribe to the MitoAction emails, we actually are in partnership with Protogen to use the MitoAction app, which is free now on uh, iPhone or iPad, to try to capture some of that information. So um, we're working on that. So, so do stay tuned stay tuned because we're on the same page about thinking about how important that is. So thanks so much for asking your question, Erica. Um, who else a has a things. question? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I just want to say a couple things about that. Um, first of all, the intercompany knowledge thing um, is – I mean, we're all publishing in the same literature. There is effort by the world community to get all this information together. It's extremely technically difficult. The NIH is working on that. The companies are helping. Um, it's not there yet, but hopefully we'll get to a situation where we find something, and that will help all our competitors. They find something that will help us. Um, the other issue is where you guys can help us, where you can help your child or yourself is in giving us good clinical information, when it's good and when it's bad. You suggested folic acid, and it didn't do anything. That helps us. You suggested folic acid, and my child is better. How better? What is better? That helps us. We put that information together. That is information that was helpful to us. Making sure that we have good clinical information so that we can figure out what's best, you know, how to interpret these boosts for your child and not just a sequence. That, you know, that, that, this sort of thing really does help. We really do like the feedback. Thank you so much. I'll continue to watch my election for, for information on what I can do. And thank you so much. Wonderful. And um, Dr. Bowles, do you have time for maybe one more question? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Who else has a question they'd like to ask Dr. Bowles? Hi, I have a question. Go ahead. Um, I was diagnosed um, back 12 years ago, actually, me and both my children. And they're now 16 and 13. Um, now, I was diagnosed actually with retinitis pigmentosa. And we had mentioned it to the children's neurologist, and that's what made him test for mitochondria. Um, so they, you know, we, it was found in all three of us. So they say that, that we have not. The neuropathy attacks your retinitis pigmentosa. Uh-huh. Now, when they were tested, they were done, um, they didn't do the bone marrow test, they did it through blood work. Yes. Like how, I mean, do you know anything about NARPs? Do you know, um, like the blood test versus bone marrow, which is, you know, which no. is better, which, I don't know, is there literally a big difference? This is really a complex answer. This is, um, first of all, is that, the NARP mutation alone establishes the diagnosis of mitochondrial disease, and I'm not aware of any additional testing, diagnostic DNA testing that would be helpful. Um, a while ago, we were recommending to get samples from many different organ systems to get an idea, not just what's in blood, but in other parts of the body. 
Sometimes that's helpful, sometimes that's not, but that doesn't give you, that doesn't really give you much treatment information. Okay. Um, it's, there's not a lot I can offer you in terms of what I know, I'm sorry. Okay. Now, um, like I said, we were all tested and we all have like different percentages and then what, I mean, what does that really mean? You don't really know what's in, what's in the heart and what's in the brain. So you don't, the percentages are really hard to interpret as to what really is going to make a difference. Okay, so even though, like, I think mine was 50%, I think my daughter's is higher, and I think my uh -huh. son's was lower than mine, I'd have to go back and look at all the paperwork. Um, but that doesn't... In, in, I mean, the, that information might mean something to your physicians. It's, without knowing the case, I can't really tell, you know, but to some extent how your children are doing is information that might be more helpful in terms of the prognosis than the actual percentages. Okay. Okay. Just goes to show that the field is still evolving. You know, I mean, it could, a year from now we may have different information, and that the field yeah. is 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 new. A year ago, there were not even the case studies we have to describe today. So, um, you know, it's it's great that you're being specific with your questions, though, so you can stay informed. Um, so we're going to wrap up now, um, Dr. Bowles. I want to thank you on behalf of the entire mitochondrial disease community for your dedication to patients and families with mitochondrial disease and also for the, the work that you do to further the understanding and the science of the disease. I want to thank Cortigen for your partnership and for your um, your very sincere support of patients and families and an interest in helping. Um, John or Lori, is there anything else that you want to have an opportunity to say um, before we close today? No, um, I think Rick pretty much uh, put everything together. Uh, if anybody needs to contact us, I'll provide you my cell phone number. It's 603-560-1320. Uh, feel free to give me a call, and I can address any questions um, that uh, you may have. Great, and John's email is on the slides as well. You also are free to email me, and I'll forward your questions to Dr. Bowles. Um, and Dr. Bowles, anything else you'd like to say in closing? Um, no, I think that's it. Thank you for the opportunity. Dr. Bowles, you did a fantastic job um, boiling down such a lot of information into a way that we could understand it and really walk away to um, make sense of this. And, and for the callers, I encourage you to share this link of this recording and the slides with your primary care doctor or with your non-mitochondrial specialists, I think it will be incredibly helpful for them. So we'll have this recording up um, in just a few moments this afternoon. You can certainly do that. So everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Please join me in thanking Dr. Bowles for um, his time and doing a fantastic job explaining how to interpret genetic tests today. Thank you, Dr. Bowles. Everyone, have a great rest of the week. and. Um, We'll be following back up again in October um, with an update from Stealth Peptides about their new uh, drug that's going into trial called Benzavia. So please join us then. Thank you, everyone. Have a great afternoon.